0: I'm Patrick Smith, in for Sasha Ann Simons, and this is the Reset Podcast. I'm a criminal justice reporter at WBEZ, and during Chicago's mayoral election, crime has been top of mind for voters. But when it comes to possible solutions, those ideas have mostly been centered around more police. Today, we want to talk about another approach to public safety, and that's community violence intervention. Because whoever is elected mayor of Chicago tomorrow will have a major impact on this growing anti-violence movement. So we wanted to spend time diving into it, where we are now, how we got here, and what happens next. To get a closer look at this issue, we turn to a panel of experts. Chris Patterson, the Assistant Secretary of Firearm Violence Prevention for the state of Illinois. He's also a former anti-violence worker. Dominique McCord, the Director of Behavioral Health for Metropolitan Peace Initiatives, Kanoya Ali is the housing coordinator for Chicago Cred, and rounding out our panel is Tenny Gross, the founder of the Institute for Nonviolence Chicago. Chris, I want to talk about the recent history and the future of community-based anti-violence efforts, but first, I think we're going to need a definition. You oversee anti-violence efforts for the state. What do we mean when we talk about community violence intervention?
1: So community violence intervention is a strategy that is not new. Um, but has definitely been scaled up recently and supported. Uh, It involves taking individuals who are from the community, uh, indigenous who have built relationships, um, and allowing those folks to uh, have the training and support to go back into those communities and support individuals who are trapped in a cycle of violence. It's a lot more comprehensive than uh, other models that we've seen before in Chicago. It involves street outreach, case management, and victim service. And the idea is to support uh, an individual who is trapped in a cycle of violence in a holistic way, and not just them, but their families and the community.
0: Yeah, and you talk about this isn't a new idea, but sort of the support for it. There's a lot of new elements to it that have have come together here in Chicago in the last five or six years. Tenny, in 2016, Chicago suffered a huge spike in gun violence. I mean, you were relatively new to the city at the time. And it was really the shock and horror of what was going on then in 2016 that— that built up support for violence prevention efforts. Take us back to those conversations in 2016 and 2017. And what did it feel like at the time? What did our city need to grapple with the violence?
2: We knew that even before that, we are not in a good place. That cities like Boston and New York and L.A. reduced their violence drastically, comparable from the 1990s, from the crack epidemic. So we knew there needs to be more work done, and then 16 just threw us, I think, into a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we had a few options, right? You can either surrender, which is not in our DNA. So what we decided to do is we started designing together, everyone around this table, actually, uh, a collaboratives, a few collaboratives like CP4P, communities partnering for peace. Ready Chicago and CRED and start to weave a system. What we knew worked on the East Coast and on the West Coast. We know today, we have enough research, that policing alone is not going to reduce violence in a city like Chicago. You do need four elements. CVI is one of them, police reform and good policing is the other. Then invest in the communities as well as prevention. And we are one of those pillars. Yeah,
0: and I think you talked about not just policing. I think it's important to note that. This time in 2016, it was not that long after the video of Laquan McDonald's killing by Officer Jason Van Dyke had come out. And so there was this feeling in the public of, like, we need to find something, an alternative to police to try to address this. I mean, Dominique, do you remember 2016 in Chicago? What, 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 how did it feel like to be out working in the communities that were hit the hardest by this gun violence?
3: I think it felt tense. It felt tense um, and a continual uh, feeling of being underlook- overlooked. Um, and that situations were going, uh, conditions were going unaddressed. Yeah. And, and Kanoy, what about you? I mean, I, did you feel the spike in violence? Um, yes. You know, in
4: 2016, matter of fact, let's take it back to since, since uh, 1965, mm. uh, 400 murders, it's been over 400 murders in the city of Chicago yeah. since 1965. It's never been under that. Norm. I mean, we usually average like,
0: Almost six hundred, I think. Right. Even, even. So, now.
4: so when you talk about four hundred murders, you talk about four hundred families being affected by this. So, when you feel it, when this increase of families being affected and family and loved ones constantly being affected, and then the the, the uh, violence keep continuing in, in that in that aspect. So.
0: Yeah. And that those families being affected put such a fine point on just how important this is and getting this right is. Chris, I want to fast forward. We're talking about what was 16 was like, what the conversations were like in 16 and 17. How does our anti-violence infrastructure look today compared to where we were in Chicago in 2016 or 17?
1: You know, in 2016, uh, there were very few violence prevention organizations or community violence intervention organizations, as they're called now, CBI. Um, and today, that's not so much the case. And so we've got a large infrastructure. Tinny spoke about it. And what we're seeing across the board is, is work that has been evaluated um, you know, by uh, several universities to, to kind of measure its success. And so as we look at it now, we're seeing 26 communities being funded from my office alone. And there are several funding streams that are coming into the CVI world now. Uh, and 16 cities outside of the city of Chicago that are now being funded for violence prevention efforts. And so that's comprehensive, and that's it's a dramatic uh, change, if you would, um, from 2016 to see so many cities outside of Chicago being funded and supported uh, with what we know works on the ground.
0: And, and Dominic, Chris just talked about this is being evaluated uh, by, by different you know, well, uh, research institutions of high esteem. We're putting more money into this. Is it working? I mean, what what is that research telling us? I think
3: the research is telling us that a comprehensive set of services are needed, Um, and so it has allowed us to expand funding and to look at the set of services beyond just violence interruption in terms of case management, in terms of therapeutic support, in terms of workforce. So it's telling us that there is a need and that there has been, you know, positive movement, but we need to invest more in terms of um, providing a comprehensive set of services.
0: Yeah, and and to that point of the the comprehensive set of services that we that we need to provide, actually say more about that. What comprehensive set of services do do we need that that goes beyond sort of what we're talking about right now?
3: Sure. From a holistic perspective, we got to think about the whole individual, right? Um, we're talking about generations of uh, disinvestment in communities. We're talking about complex trauma. So what does it look like for someone who is um, choosing an alternative lifestyle to engage in the workforce that takes some level of uh, clinical support in terms of skill building? Um, That would also look like, you know, having a job that is background friendly and understands where the person has come from and Mm -hmm. what supports they may need internally from a workforce perspective to enable them to sustain and build capacity um, in the job opportunity that they've been
0: uh, chosen for yeah, and, and Kenoy, I want to go back to the, the point you made a second ago about about the 400 murders. That's per year, as, as we're talking about. Um, just to make yeah, sure people just understand,
4: to be, just to be super clear, it hasn't been 400 murders since 1965.
0: Right. It's always more than that. It's
4: always year. more than that. We've reached 800 as uh, recently as uh, I think 2019. We reached 800 murders.
0: And, and so, so what Dominique was just talking about uh, the need for comprehensive help. You know, I think that's a really good point. A question I hear from skeptics, though, when I report on this, when I put out there, is they say, "Hey, we've been pouring more money. We've been putting more money into community-based violence prevention. Violence now is actually worse than it was in 2016, which mm-hmm. was so horrible we we had to all come together." And um, how? I mean, what do you say to people who say, "Hey, how can you say this is worthwhile when we actually haven't seen a right. decrease in shootings?" Well, when you think about money spent, you I I think about uh the amount of money spent
4: uh on uh, on policing. Uh, we are almost had a billion dollars or uh, the new neighborhood 78 uh, who six billion dollars is spent so when you talk about money spent in on this kind of work uh, I don't think we've reached a hundred million a year yet which is less than 10 percent of what we're spending on policing after the effect we really are talking about pre-policing at this mm. point and that hasn't been that really hasn't been looked at and uh, as well as we, we we're also looking at a young people, this generation, we're talking about people, uh, shooters that are victimized at a very young age and never had a chance at all. Uh, Arnie Duncan constantly tell us, you know, we talk about second chances when we really talking about children who's never had a first chance mm. in the first place. Right. So at the end of the day. 15, 16, 14, 13, we're looking at people that's that's getting access to weapons, and we're not asking the right questions. Like, where are the guns coming from in the first place? Yeah. How do a 13-year-old get an automatic weapon that shoots 100 rounds, right, and he doesn't have any money? So where, where does where, are those, where do those weapons come from in the first place? And then also, how does the family look? What's the education system set up for them to be successful? What's their goals in life? How can you... How can you change the life of someone who's never looked at a goal to be set in the first place to say this is where I'm going to be at at the age 21? They're looking at day-to-day goals. How can I eat? Where I'm going to sleep? You know, what's my trajectory for this week versus, you know, what's my goal for the year? So as a community, I'm saying, and what I, I believe everybody here is saying, We need to spend more time with the youth and pouring money into the people and look at them as victims versus perpetrators.
0: Yeah. And you're talking about the comprehensive needs that that Dominique was talking about. I want to get back to that, the needs of the people who are at the center and back to that comparison you're making between spending on policing versus spending on these sorts of efforts. First, I I do want to talk about, you know, as I'm kind of doing this, this arc of history, the COVID-19 pandemic. That certainly is a part of this story about gun violence in Chicago, gun violence nationally. We saw it. Increased nationally uh, during the pandemic, following the George Floyd uprisings. Tenny, I, I, specifically the Institute for Nonviolence. I mean, how did the COVID-19 pandemic, in particular those early months of severe isolation, how did it affect
2: IMBC? So we walked into the unknown. Uh, I looked at staff when we were closing one office and receding into another office. How many of them will I see back? You know, I really looked, kind of almost say goodbye. We did not go virtual even for one day. So it's established in Chicago that outreach are essential workers, like police, like EMT. We were out there. Guess what didn't stop during COVID? The need for drugs, right? If you're addicted, COVID or not, you're out there. And that is the driver of violence. Then you had a further decline in the trust in government with George Floyd nationally. Wall Street Journal reported that white rural America saw an explosion of violence. So this is not specific to Chicago. I know that in 19, in Austin, the biggest neighborhood we had from three years, we had a decline of 50% of shootings. The city saw a reduction. COVID, social unrest blew it apart. Makes total sense, right? Mm -hmm. All around the country. What would it have been if the infrastructure we have built wasn't here? how bad would it have gone? Cities like LA and New York that I thought were kind of pretty close to being reformed, it blew them up too. I was surprised. We were much newer. We -hmm. were not even ready to absorb this kind of a tsunami. Uh, And yet cities that were well prepared, 20 years of violence reduction, 20 years of police reform, even they suffered real losses. So I think perspective in this dialogue is always important. Just like when you evaluate the investment, policing is a billion nine, As we were saying, I think we're at 50 million. Uh, It's less than 3%, 2%, and it needs time, right? So we want to be, we evaluate, we've all evaluated through at least two, three universities because we want to get better. This is for us a management tool. But when people ask the question, what is their intention, you're asking it after I just hired someone and they're not even trained and you already know if it's working. Are you applying those same standards in your question to someone else? And that's often the questions we got. Baltimore just came, John Hopkins, with the research of a much weaker program in mm. Baltimore, not as funded well. And they're showing in terms of return on investment, it's, it's quite significant. I think Chicago, six years from now, will be a much bigger return on investment.
0: And, and, and I know we're jumping around here, but but I think it's important. I want to sort of inject a little bit more for the listener of what this work is really like and what it entails while we're having this conversation. I think it's important for people to understand just how much anti-violence workers do. They're helping people find jobs they're helping them get therapy or education. They are in the lives of the people they work with. Um, one day I was out shadowing an anti-violence worker named Cecilia Mannion in Little Village. She's a victim advocate. And, and she gave this whole speech to a young man that she was worried was on the verge of joining a gang. The speech ended. I was there for this this talk that she was giving him. It ended with her bringing him around to the back of her SUV and showing him these memorial crosses she had made. I want to take a listen uh, uh, to that moment.
3: Do you know what those are? Board. No. Do you know what these would represent? These go for special people that pass away. Everybody's special. But this goes for specific people. Can I share with you? Okay. So these people these people that are on these crosses, the majority of them are youth. Young as you. That
0: they haven't found the killers. So you've got workers there who are not just, you know, trying to prevent gang shootings, trying to trying to prevent violence. They're also trying to keep people out of danger in the first place. Um, Kanoya, real quick, what kind of support do people at the center of gun violence need? And What are some things that you all provide that people might not expect? So we start
4: with uh, like I'm so happy the sisters here today. Mental health has is, is definitely been a key and uh we start with them coming in to first of all, let me back up we start with the outreach worker who would communicate with the persons and they have a license to operate in the neighborhood which means they are known in the neighborhood to be trustworthy so the young people normally come in and they respect them and kind of take their lead as far as um what's the next steps for them as as a mentor so the next steps they go to a therapeu therapy and they get with a counselor and mm-hmm. talk to them Many of them say they never had a chance to talk to anybody their whole entire lives. And they have, some of them have more friends uh, killed or murdered than their actual age. So you're talking about 15, 16 wow. years old, with 15 to 16 year old, 17 friends already murdered. So uh, they're dealing with a lot of trauma, PTSD that you probably couldn't imagine, you or I couldn't imagine. You know, we wouldn't imagine this if a, if a, a military, military vet coming back and he witnessed. Uh, seventeen, eighteen of his friends being murdered, and uh, he's he's to be okay.
0: We expect him to be fine. Tenny, I want to go back to a point that that Kenoya made earlier, which is um, the candidates. I want to go back to the candidates in this this mayoral race. Uh, Paul Vallis, he wants to increase the number of officers we have and increase the budget for the Chicago Police Department, which, as Canoy mentioned, it's actually already close to two billion dollars a year. Brandon Johnson, the other candidate, uh, he he says he wouldn't increase the CPD budget, but his violence prevention plan is largely police-focused. Have you been disappointed in how little attention in this mayor's race has been paid to other ways to reduce sh- shootings beyond police?
2: Of course. Um, the only comfort I have is that political campaigning is not reality. That's what I tell myself, right? That. Mm. The reality of the best chiefs, retired chiefs in this country, is that they would not try and change a city without CVI, without those other services. They know it. Whether you go Breton, Beck, anyone else around this country is worth their salt, knows you need to rely on community work. It, this, this campaign has been sort of hectic and fast, and it went on fear. And he tells me that some of the residents in my city can be scared really quickly. And again, it's been tough years. And because of COVID and everything we described, so going into policies that are just based on fears, I don't think that's how people are going to govern. That's my hope. My hope is that civilian architecture that we have built and the goodwill around this city and the infrastructure, you cannot run this city anymore just with the policing, and the police wouldn't want that. So I'm less. I'm just hoping to see what happens after Tuesday. Dominique,
0: what have you heard from the mayoral, mayoral candidates that excites you on this issue? What have you heard that, that concerns you?
3: Um, as a clinical social worker, I think um, what excites me is the increase in mental health services uh, when police are responding to shootings. Often we're asking for a specific type of officer, but having individuals who, you know, have a different skill set to respond alongside of officers uh, in a higher number, I think excites me. Um, I think what scares me um, is that it won't be enough. Um, I think we're hyper-focused on police, and there's so much more to making our city safer than policing.
0: To that point, Kinoya, uh, I want to go back. Now I actually do want to go back to the point you made. I got a little ahead of myself a second ago. But um, I think any time a reporter does a story on this kind of work, myself included, they, they feel the need to inject some skepticism. And I think skepticism is a good thing. But how do you feel about the level of scrutiny given to the millions of dollars that you all get compared to the billions of dollars that goes to policing and prisons every year? I feel like it's un- unfair. I believe that
4: um if I if I judge the community if I judge the city on how much money we spent on policing um you know we would we would they would probably receive a bad grade if you judge on the same amount of money percentage per capita per per what we spent on these programs you would have a better outcome for 25 million whatever 50 million I think Tini said 50 million mm. spent on the city um, and then seeing a 30 percent decrease, 34 percent decrease in uh, gun violence in certain neighborhoods that that these that our organizations are in. I think I think you you have a better bet, a better chance in those areas. Try something that hasn't been tried before. Give it some time. Let the
0: seeds grow and
4: then judge me on, on, on what's the outcome.
0: Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, considering you're in government. I mean, you know, we're talking about what the research shows, what what's happened in, in individual neighborhoods, what what groups can do with the people they touch. How much of an investment would it take if we're talking just Chicago? I know you you work in all of Illinois, but if we're talking just Chicago, how much of an investment would it take to scale these efforts up where you could see a meaningful difference in shooting numbers in the city?
1: So that's a great question. Um, the, the first part of that my answer would be our office, um, you know, the Governor Pritzker allocated two hundred and fifty million dollars towards this initiative over a three year period. We're seeing about, you know, from our lens from the state and then there's a the city and then there's the county mm. uh, as it pertains to the city of Chicago. Our investments to date, uh we've gotten out a hundred a little under one hundred and fifty million of the two fifty. Um and that hasn't all been dedicated towards Chicago, but we're we're estimating about sixty million dollars to sustain and build capacity just from this particular office, and I know the city, again, and the county both have investments towards this end. Um, some projections that we, in, in, the, in the circles of, of, in the school of thought, is that we need about two hundred and fifty million dollars per year to sustain this work mm. uh, in the in the multiple say pillars uh, that we've identified earlier. I think Tenny was talking about those to sustain and, and build out this work that we're doing uh, that is actually saving lives.
0: And, and I want to clarify here because we're using a couple different numbers here. You said of the 250, it was the end of 2021 where Governor Pritzker uh, declared gun violence a public health crisis and committed $250 million to these sorts of efforts that we're talking about today. Yes. You say you all have gotten out. How much did you say that's gone out so far?
1: So in the neighborhood of about $145 million, um, with, and then that's also, you know, with over one hundred and eight, um, one hundred and ten, if you would, I think I'm rounding it up a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, providers across the state of Illinois. And,
0: and Tenny, th- those dollars that have gone out, I know it's not all going to Institute for Nonviolence. And, and I don't think you even want it would all, want it to all go there. But have you seen the impact? Have we started to see the impact of that on the ground?
2: I mean, I'm, I've done this work for 33 years. I. I never thought I would be permitted to have clinicians supporting my staff. I felt it's cruelty. You know, people in, in black neighborhoods, if you're a young, young black male, you have a chance five to six times to be shot more than during the surge in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And I thought that just me and a few of my outreach workers are going to treat that. I mean, it, we were kind of ridiculous, right? So to actually now have CBT training, cognitive behavioral therapy to our own staff, we, they're traumatized from the past, but we send them tonight. We had shootings. Our team responds 24 hours a day, disaccumulative, trainings, all those case management, bringing new young people, to get stipended. We have different full workforce uh, program. All that is slow progress, but it's the right progress. We have been just relying on putting people in boxes, in cages. That breaks and decimates families. And one of the things, I'm not black, right? So question is: If eighty percent of the homicides take place in the West and South Side, shouldn't the voices of how people want to be treated and what kind of government treatment shouldn't be skewed to the people in those neighborhoods? Shouldn't we be listening to what people in those neighborhoods want as a treatment, as opposed to just send me more incarceration?
0: And, and to your point about clinicians and, and, and training that we're talking about, Dominique, um, I'd assume that when the government or philanthropy gives money to organizations. They want to pay frontline workers, not like office staff or HR. I mean, how do we make sure that the organizations that are growing, if we keep investing in this as you all think we should, how do we make sure that, that we don't spread those organizations too thin that the infrastructure is built up to support the workers and the, and the people that they're working with?
3: So a couple things. I think for us, we've taken the time to build uh, partnerships with universities and with community organizations to build a pipeline. Um, a workforce that will be able to uh, provide the direct service. And I think our model has also been train the trainer. From trauma-informed care to crisis intervention, we recognize that there we need all hands on deck. So being able to follow a psychological first aid model, if you will, and equipping the public and other entities that we partner with, with the skill set to work alongside our clinicians to be able to intervene at an earlier space um, in trauma.
0: Tenny, I want to ask you what does anti-violence work and the support for it look like in other cities? You were talking about other cities before. I mean, compare Chicago to to LA or Boston or New York. How do, how do we compare?
2: Well, I'm I'm becoming very proud about Chicago, so I'm going to be biased. Um, I think people are now jealous around the country in what has been built here. The story hasn't gotten out yet. So thank you for having us here today. There's a really impressive coordination that is going on with different city agencies. There's no notification that mm-hmm. 24 hours a day is happening. This is a sophisticated architecture. In other cities, they just got there earlier than we did, right? They did coordination with law enforcement, with city services, with incarceration, with schools, right? People are coming out. Do they have a job, beds, et cetera? So it really is a structure to support The 0.3% who drive 70% of the violence, those, as Chris says, are stuck in the cycle of violence and focusing on them. There needs to be a lot of other services. Our world is focused on the 0.3.
0: There's so many things I want to talk to you all about. We've only got about five minutes left, so I want to jump to something we haven't touched on yet that that is something that I just really noticed as I've been reporting on this anti-violence work, which is the toll that this work can take on the people who do it um anti-violence work is incredibly stressful it can be traumatic the people who do the work often have have trauma in their own past um one of the workers that i was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with his name is sorenzo strong he's an anti-violence worker in east garfield park one of the last times i interviewed him i I mean i've talked to him since but one of the last times i interviewed him was right after he had come back to work after he took a month off at his doctor's orders Uh, let's take a listen
4: yeah i went in for a checkup and Wind up in the hospital. <laughs> Just my blood pressure was high, and the doctor thought it was probably stress, probably from the job. She's like, "This might not be the job for you. You might need to take a break or find another position."
0: So, so based on you know what his doctor was telling him, it, it seems that the stress of this work put Sorenzo possibly in a hypertensive crisis. Kenoya, if this is going to be a pillar of our anti-violence plan in Chicago, what responsibility do we have as a city? Do you all have as organizations and leaders to take care of the workers? I think is uh, I
4: think it's our, our responsibility to make sure that everyone has uh, some time off. They have time to uh, relax. Therapy is definitely a place where we all need to be mandated to go see, uh, speak to a therapist. You're talking about work that uh. Re- that you know that somebody that you'll create a relationship with will be murdered um even if he's mm-hmm. not doing uh even if he's changed his life, this is something you you know this will happen so and also I think uh vacations are mandatory you, uh, many of us go without vacations just because it's it's a job that uh when you connect when you re- get these relationships going, you can't stop a participant or, or one or one of the guys you connected with from calling you and saying. I need some advice. I need some help. Or someone mm-hmm. just was murdered. And how do you how do you vacate on that time when one of your participants was murdered? We we lose a participant, uh, Chicago Creed. We we lost a participant last week. Cedric Body, he was murdered. He made a major change. Uh, before that, a week before that, I believe, or two weeks before that, we lost another participant. So this is something that's a, cons- a consistent thing. But I don't I don't have the dire- the specific answers. But I just know that uh, something has to be done, and
0: I, 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 I now will go rely largely on therapy. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm sure that that must have been hard on you and the whole organization. I, I, to be clear, it's probably obvious to people, but participants are – it's a term of art used in this this world. It's the people that you all work with, that your workers are working with every day. Uh, I talked about the stress and the trauma of this job. I, I also want to talk, Chris, about the power this has to help the people who do the work. You know, They're out there trying to help people out on the street. But I've seen it sort of personally transform the lives of the people who are actually doing the work. I wonder if you could talk about that, maybe how it changed your life, but how it can affect the lives of the people doing this anti-violence work.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be very important that the investment we make in the individuals who are out there saving other lives, that they feel like their lives are also being saved. And, I, you know, uh, and, you know, if you think about the street outreach professionals, the case managers, the victim advocates, oftentimes uh, what makes them so good at their jobs are the fact that they have the lived experience, Mm -hmm. right? And so we've got folks who are working on the front line, who have been incarcerated, who have been survivors of gun violence. Uh, And now, you know, almost cruelly, I think Tenny mentioned this, was putting them back out into the communities in which they came from and asking them to go and save others. And in the midst of that, they're seeing, um, to Kenoy's point, their participants – slain in the streets, right? So reliving this trauma, it's important that we, one, address that level of trauma, but then also we create a pathway so that outreach isn't a dead-end job for individuals who are doing it. So that outreach workers can get the educational support, the societal support that we're trying to give their participants. That, you know, I see many uh, in the leadership development portion of this uh, CVI work across the city of Chicago many of the leaders in a lot of the organizations were at one time street outreach workers. Mm -hmm. So, right, to see someone who came in uh, as an outreach worker like I did um, and to move up the ranks to have those opportunities is what we should be affording everyone who's in this field uh, is professional development on steroids. And so uh, in order to do that, because a healthier uh, person who's working on the ground is going to be more impactful for the people they're
0: working with. Excellent. Um, Dominique, I want to I end with you. Uh, Tenny talked about the infrastructure and, and, and the great coordination that's happening in Chicago, but growing this anti-violence movement in the last few years in Chicago, it's been like building a plane while flying it. You've worked within this space. You're a leader in this space. I'm wondering what lessons have you learned that's improved your work or made you rethink how we approach violence prevention?
3: I think it's everything that everyone has said, taking into account that the people who are doing the work should lead the work and valuing their expertise and supporting them in a manner that speaks to our care for them, uh, paying them a livable wage, uh, making sure they have access to health care. Um, is not just doing lip service; it's providing holistic wraparound services, not only for the workforce but also for the individuals, participants, individual participants that we're servicing.
0: And uh, I could talk to you all for the next two hours, but instead, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we've been speaking with Dominique McCord, Kanoya Ali, Tenny Gross, and Chris Patterson. Thank you all so much for joining for us, us for this conversation today. It means us. a lot. That episode of The Reset Podcast was produced by me, Meha Ahmad, and Michael Liptrot. It was edited by Ethan Schwab. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in tomorrow when fellow WBEZ reporter Adora Namigade will be in the host chair. Have a great day and see you right back here tomorrow.